Good morning, everybody. If you'd like to take your seats. The coffee and donuts got everybody amped up. All right. Well, my name is Pastor Curtis. If we haven't met before, it's nice to meet you. Um, I also was going to talk about Sanctity of Life, but Jeremy already shared a mini message about it. But I will just say, over the last uh, 50 years since Roe versus Wade um, was passed, um, 60 million babies have been, have been killed. Um, and so I'm just going to pray, leave it at that, and pray um, for our country. And as Roe versus Wade has been overturned on the federal level, that just means on the state level, we've got a lot of work to do now, so it's not done. Uh, So, Lord Jesus, we love you. We love the children that you have, um, that you've made, that you've knit together. And, Father, we just ask that you will show us how to uh, see this terrible thing uh, overturned on the state level, um, in every arena of life. God, we want to honor you. We want to, um, we want to honor uh, these, these little babies, Lord, that deserve a life, that deserve uh, civil rights, that deserve um, love and affection. And so, Lord, as we um, are engaged in our culture to live out our biblical worldview, we just pray that you'll give us wisdom, give us knowledge, help us to impact our community for Jesus in this way. Lord, we love you so much. It's your name we pray. Amen. So, um, as the American church, uh, we have not done a very good job um, at raising up uh, this next generation. Um, we haven't done a good job of discipling the, the people that, that come into our church buildings. And, and you can see this through... Um, the different statistics that have come out. I don't know if you guys ever uh, see like Barna Research. Have you, have you, has anybody ever heard of that Barna Research group? They're, they're really great resource. Um, they're based out of Ventura, and they come out with just incredible statistics that help us understand um, where the weak points are as Christians uh, in our culture. So uh, we access that a lot. Me and Jeremy talk a lot about that, of how do we see where the weak points are in people's faith in America today, and how do we address that? How do we, um, especially, you know, Jeremy with the youth and the, and the families there, we've got a big job to try to, and I lead young professionals, so we've got a big job to tr- hopefully shape believers in a way that they can uh, form a biblical worldview, which means a worldview is just the lens that you look at the world through. So it's, 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 it really is nothing more than that. It's, you're, you're viewing the world through the biblical lens. So that's what a biblical worldview is. And so um, obviously our goal here is that we would shape uh, and disciple believers to have a biblical worldview, to look at the world through a biblical lens. So Barna came out with a study a few years ago, and it was uh, that 75% of young people um, will leave the faith after high, after high school. And only 1% of young people in America have a biblical worldview. So um, that's, a, that's a pretty scary statistic, okay? So we've got our, our work cut out for us, all right? So pray for us. Um, we, we're, we're, we're trying our very best. Um, 
And there's a lot of, uh, and as you talk, as Jeremy talked about last week, there, the issue is from pastors who don't have a biblical worldview. A, a lot of pastors in America don't have a biblical worldview. And authors and worship leaders and people that are putting out content that, um, that are not helpful to this goal of, of helping people have a biblical worldview. I'm reading this book right now called Death to Deconstruction, De- Deconstructionism. And um, if you don't know what deconstructionism is, it's basically you're, you're looking at your faith and, um, and slowly deconstructing it. So you're, you're taking away, okay, well, this doesn't seem very probable in the Bible, so I'm going to ignore that part. And then it's only a matter of time before you ignore something else and you take out something else. And then you've eventually you come to the point the Bible isn't a reliable source. Um, God isn't who he says he is. And I don't, I'm not a believer at all anymore. And so uh, there's a lot of churches out there that are fo- very focused on uh, seeing people saved. They love to, to tout the numbers of people that have given their lives to the Lord or who have been baptized the issue is that if you have people who are being saved but not discipled, then you're just uh, you're just going around the same circle over and over again. I had this I uh, had this pastor say in a pastor's conference um, to the whole room. They said, "I really only care about the evangelism aspect. I don't really care about discipleship at all." And I remember thinking like. How aren't you just going to be in the same like problem? <laughs> You're trying to save people. They come in. If you don't build them a foundation that they can stand on, they're just going to go back into the world. I mean, they're just going to slip through your fingers. So um, I think that we've got a duty and a responsibility as Christians to um, not uh, build this picture of Christianity that is you just come and you get fluffed up so that you can do, your, do the rest of your life. You come in and you get puffed up enough to where you can last another week so you can come back and listen to this mega pastor puff you up again and then you go back out and try to survive another week. Um, I believe that we should be uh, building up believers to where they have a strong foundation that they're standing on and they can influence their world around them and actually grow in faith. Can you imagine that? So, um, we're going to be in 2 Peter today, um, and we're continuing on. We went through 1 Peter. Jeremy finished that up last week, and this is the second letter that that Peter wrote to the same believers uh, that 1 Peter was written to. It's just two years later. The title of today's message is Developing a Faith That Never Stumbles. Okay? Did you know that there's a recipe in the Bible for a faith that never stumbles? Anybody know that? I mean, this is one of the things that we should be, this is, should be one of the most quotable scriptures ever, but because it requires work on our behalf, it's not. You know, it's not one of those things that you just tw- tweet on, on Twitter or whatever, and it's like, oh, it's so exciting, you know? It, it's one of those things that will really change your life, though. So um, to get a, get a hold of this passage, um, we're going to skip down to 2 Peter 1, 12 through 15, and that's going to kind of give us a framework for the rest of what we're studying today. So we're going to be in 2 Peter 1, 1 through 11, but I'm going to read 2 Peter 1, 12 through 15 first, and then we'll get into the passage, okay? 
So it says, For this reason, I will not be negligent to remind you always of these things. Though you know and are established in the present truth, yes, I think it is right, as long as I am in this tent, to stir up by reminding you, knowing that shortly I must put off my tent, just as our Lord Jesus showed me. Moreover, I will be careful to ensure that you always have a reminder of these things after my decease. So he's Peter is saying, I'm about to die. He's about to put off his, his bodily tent. And this is his final message to the church that he is leading. Remember Jeremy mentioned, uh, whenever there's a list of the apostles, Peter's always first because he's, he's the greatest apostle. He's the one that the church was built on. He's the one that Jesus looked to and said, your name will, is not Simon anymore. It'll be Petros, which means rock. And on this rock, I will build my church. So that's Peter. And so Peter's, Peter is, he's winding down. He's in a prison. He knows that he's going to be killed at any time. And he's sending this letter to remind the church of a few things that we're going to study today so that they will be strong. Peter's winding down. So he's like, okay, what are the last things I'm going to encourage the church with before I die? What can I give them that they can hold on to and pursue? And what can I remind them of so that they will stand firm? And we don't have the church's letter to Peter, but um, kind of like with an email, like if I looked at your emails and I didn't have the whole email chain, I just looked at one email and your email was to your boss in an email chain and the, and the last email of the email chain was I'm so sorry, um, I missed the deadline for this project, uh, I'll get it to you tomorrow. I could, I could deduce from that that the email right before that from the boss to the person was, hey, you didn't finish your project on time. Does that make sense? Everybody following? Okay, so we can deduce that based on what Peter talks about in this letter, the church's response to him, or the church's uh, initial letter to him is, um, we know you're winding down. We know you're going to be killed at any time. How do we stay on track? You're, you've been our leader since Jesus was crucified, and he gave him that, you know, that uh, encouragement that you're going to be the rock that the church is built on. He's been there the whole time, challenging them, encouraging the church, and now he's not going to be there. So what do we do from here? There's probably some fear about what the, what the future will hold, what the future will look like. So the layout of this letter is Peter uh, starts with an encouragement to the church, and then he follows it with three uh, heresies that have, uh, that have become common in their culture. So he's going to uh, tackle uh, those three things in the following weeks. We're going to talk about those, okay? Okay, yeah, yeah, okay, cool. Um, <laughs> so 2 Peter 1.1 1, 1 says... Simon Peter, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained like precious faith with us by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So right off the bat, Peter, um, he recognizes that um, the church might feel uh, a little bit weary about what the future looks like. So he's responding and he's saying, hey, I'm just a servant of Jesus like, why are you looking to me? Jesus is still on the throne. He's still leading the church. Uh, it's not, that's not going to change because I'm going to die. 
And then he's also putting his title of being a servant of Jesus ahead of being an apostle. Okay, so, so Peter really values this idea of being a servant. And uh, it's the same with Paul. He identifies himself as a servant of Christ in, in Romans. And then also, if you remember John the Baptist, he, he has this really great, um, you know, he's, he's getting a lot of notoriety. People are coming around and he's, he's got this big crowd and he says, there's someone coming who I won't even, I, I'm not even worthy to untie his sandals because he is so amazing. And, and he's obviously talking about Jesus. And so uh, the, the duty then of, um, of the least servant in any household was to untie people's sandals and wash their feet when they came in, in the house. So what, what John was saying is, I, I'm not even worthy to do that. So these apostles had, and, and John the Baptist had an amazing view of, and a, such a high view of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And um, so we've also got, uh, in this first little passage here, we see that he's writing this letter to the believers in the church, right? To, to those who have the same precious faith. Um, so he's writing to them. And, and then in 2 Peter 1, 2, it says, um, oops, sorry. It says, uh, Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, and as his divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Through the knowledge of him who, who called us by glory and virtue, by which have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises, that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. That word through means because of. So you're escaping the corruption in the world that's, that's gotten there because of lust, okay? So lust is just the desire for what is forbidden, okay? So he's preaching to these believers who have escaped the corruption in the world. They are trusting in God's promises, and they're partaking in the divine nature because they've received these promises. But uh, what happens next is Peter is going to tell us that Yes, faith is important. Having faith in Jesus, that's like the, that's like the entryway. That's, like, that's where you start. And then he's going to give us seven things to add to our faith to, never, to make sure that we never stumble, okay? Um, before we get into that, uh, Ephesians 2, 8 through 9. Um, this is just, I feel like we need to be clear that... Um, I'm not saying we need to have faith and then we need to add these things for salvation, okay? What I'm saying is we have faith and then we add these things on because we're believers. We trust in God. We have a biblical worldview. We believe what the Bible says is true and so we do these things because of that. So Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 says, For by grace you've been saved through faith, that not of yourselves it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. So we're not saved by all these works that we're going to talk about today, but it doesn't mean they're not absolutely essential. So uh, Matthew 28, 18 through 20, even in the Great Commission, um, it's not all about just our faith in Jesus Christ. Do you guys know that? We're not just called to go preach the gospel. We are also called to do something else. Uh, Matthew 28, 18 through 20, it says, And Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All authority on, uh, has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. We've all heard that. 
And then verse 20, teaching them to observe all the things I have commanded you, and lo, I'm with you even to the end of the age. That's discipleship, right? So we're going to talk a little bit about what Peter thinks are the most important things in discipleship. Um, and I think if we took a poll, like out here on the street, and we asked people, hey, what do you think are seven things that we should do to, to develop a stable faith. I think people would probably say things like, you should go to church every week, or you should read your Bible every day, or you should pray every day, or you should join a small group, or you should serve, or you should give financially. Um, would you guys say that that's what people would say? You think so? Those are all great things, right? But Peter doesn't say that. So 2 Peter 1, 5 through 8 says, But also for this very reason, that reason is because the world is corrupt, from verse 4. He says, Giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue, and to virtue knowledge, and to knowledge self-control, to self-control perseverance, to perseverance godliness, to godliness brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness love. For if these things are yours and abound, you will neither be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For, um, for he who lacks these things is short-sighted even to blindness and has forgotten that he was cleansed from his old sins. Therefore, brethren, be more diligent to make your call and election sure. For if you do these things, you will never stumble." For so an entrance will be supplied to you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. There's a lot of promises in there about that list. You won't be barren or unfruitful. You won't be blind, which is good. Um, you won't stumble. And you'll have an abundance, abundant entrance into heaven. Okay, that all sounds pretty good, right? So to me, this should be like... This should be the verse that you have in your house on the wall or whatever. Like this should be the thing that we're, we're looking to because yes, we, are, we have attained faith and now we want to stabilize that faith. Now we want to figure out how do we live biblically? How do we grow in our faith so that we have a firm foundation so when things happen in our lives, we're not thrown to and fro. So... Uh, if you don't ever want to stumble in your faith, you can keep listening here. So uh, the, the number one thing is, is virtue. That's the first thing we're asked to add to our faith. We're told to add to our faith. And virtue is moral goodness, okay? That's, it's regarding thought and feeling and action, and it's modesty and purity, okay? Moral goodness regarding thought, feeling, and emotion, modesty and purity, uh, Philippians 4.8 says, Finally, brethren, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are good, of good report, if there's any virtue, if there's anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things. That's virtue. That's moral goodness. And I'm, I'm going to uh, talk about uh, verses, uh, other places in the Bible that talk about these different things that we're supposed to pursue. And um, during this time, before we get further into it, I'm going to ask that 
spouses don't nudge their other spouse, their spouse, and say, hey, this, this is one that you need to work on. Or, um, you know, let's all uh, take a second, look at ourselves, think, think about yourselves as we're going through this. Um, and there's going to be something for everyone that we can maybe even put on this year and say, in 2023, I'm going to work on being more virtuous. I'm going to work on my thoughts, my feelings, and my actions being pure before God. That's enough to keep us busy for the rest of our lives, right? But we're going to keep going. So the second one is knowledge. And this is a general knowledge of God and our faith, okay? So Proverbs 1.5 says, Let the wise hear and increase in learning. Let the one who understands obtain guidance. Proverbs 18.15 says, An intelligent heart acquires knowledge, and the ear of the wise seeks knowledge, okay? So um, with all the rains going on and stuff the past couple of weeks, um, our mailbox, so we're on Corbett Canyon, and there's a driveway coming down, and our mailboxes are by the street, and there's this really um, thick mud that developed right in front of our mailboxes, and um, I have this really sweet off-roading vehicle. It's called the Prius, and um, it's... It's not just the normal Prius, like, that have normal-sized tires. It's like uh, the Prius C, which stands for Prius Cheap. Um, and its, its tires are literally, like, this wide. It's like, they're like bike tires, you know? So I, I, I thought that it had enough time to dry out by the mailbox. Usually my thing is, like, pull in by the mail and check the mail or whatever and then drive up the driveway. Well, so I pulled in and immediately sunk to the body of the car. Like, it just went straight down. And <laughs> this thing was like, I, I, I was totally stuck. There was nothing I could do about it. And uh, my brother-in-law lives next door to us, so I call him. He's got this wimpy Land Cruiser, and he pulls down, and he's got these big tires on him and stuff, and he's, he's all hot shot and stuff. Is he here? Is Logan here? Anyway, man, what a punk. So he's like, oh, I'm coming to the rescue. And I'm like, oh, man, I just lost my man card. And <laughs> you could, one could argue that that happened when I got the Prius. But anyway, <laughs> but <laughs> um, <laughs> anyway, so he pulls down, backs up. We strap the car up. And there's, there's no jack points that I can tie around to get the car out. So he's like, hey, if you turn your wheel, we can get access to the A joint and wrap around that and then pull it out. So I was like, that sounds like a good idea. So, <laughs> so we do that, we pull it out, and, um, and I'm driving on the freeway the next day, and I'm just like bumping along. I'm like, what is, what is happening? <laughs> well, I took it to the shop, and apparently um, all of this mud and junk got stuck up under it, which put it out of alignment. The A joint was fine, um, but it was just like this, uh, it made me think about this this idea that we need to gain knowledge from the Bible because our world is like we can get things stuck up under our hood from the, from the world, you know, like all that mud and gunk stuck up under there that totally affects our alignment. And uh, it'll cause us to um, to not use the wisdom that the Bible's given us and when, you know, my little Prius is trying to get up to 65 on the freeway and, um, <clears throat> you know, it's bumping along, like when my engine's stressed, that's when I really notice all of the bumps, right? And same with in our world, 
when we're, you know, once we, we can pick up knowledge and stuff like that from the world, and then once we're getting up to speed and things get a little more stressful or more pressure, then we really realize the bumps in the and, uh, and the way that this drive is not as smooth as it should be, you know? So um, I think that's a great reason why we need to be uh, immersing ourselves in the wisdom of the Bible because the Bible is going to help us stay in alignment. It's going to keep us right there. Um, it's, it's not going to make our ride perfectly smooth. Sorry to break it to you. There's going to be things that come along, but it will prevent those issues from being something that's in the car, you know, something that, that, that God is, has built into us the knowledge that we need and we'll be, you know, we'll, we need to constantly be studying the word to, to make sure that we're staying in alignment. So I would just encourage everybody, don't be satisfied with what you know right now of the Bible. Don't, don't uh, just think, oh yeah, I'm a, I'm a Christian. I come to church. I get to hang out with my friends here at church. And then uh, I go to my small group we should always be learning. We should always be studying. We should always be pushing ourselves. And um, I think I actually do more reading and studying now than I did when I was doing my master's because now it's like something that I actually enjoy. It's something I can, I get to press in and learn from God about the things that are present and relevant in my life. If I have a friend or somebody who's dealing with something, I can get a book and see what God says about that particular thing. So um, we need to constantly be sharpening, honing, learning um, so that we can stay in alignment with him. The third one, self-control. Uh, this one is uh, the virtue of one who masters his desires and passions, especially his or her sensual appetites. Okay, so Proverbs fourteen twenty nine says, he who is slow to wrath has great understanding. So it's not just with sexual appetites, but it, it, it definitely includes that. So he who is slow to wrath has great understanding, but he who is impulsive exalts folly or foolishness. Galatians 5, 24 through 25 says, and those who are Christ have been or have crucified the flesh and its passions and desires. If we live in the spirit, let us also walk in the spirit. And I added a couple more that aren't on the screen. Jeremiah 17, 9 says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? One of the things that really bugs me about <laughs> uh, our culture today is that they really push this, this trusting in your own gut. It's like, oh, I'm trusting in my heart and my gut, and this feels right to me. And everything in the Bible speaks so clearly against that. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Proverbs 14, 12 says, There is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. So we can't trust our instincts. We can't trust our gut. We can't trust um, just what comes to our minds. We have to have self-control. We need to rein that in. We need to get a hold of our desires and passions of just impulsive, impulsively pursuing whatever we want to. And we got to see what God says. Uh, the fourth one is perseverance. And I think uh, it's intentional that this is the one right in the middle is like, okay, don't get discouraged by those first three. You know, don't, don't get worn out by just by pursuing those things. Persevere. We've, we've still got the rest of the list to go. Um, so uh, steadfastness, perseverance is steadfastness, constancy, and endurance. 
In the New Testament, the characteristics of a man who is not swerved from his deliberate purpose and his loyalty to faith and piety, which is reverence to God by even the greatest trials and sufferings. So perseverance is even with the greatest trials and sufferings, we still can, we're still loyal to our faith and we have reverence for God. Okay, if we can accomplish that, we'll be doing, we'll be doing great. You know, no matter what comes our way, we can still have reverence for God and we can still have loyalty in our faith. Christ was an amazing example of this. Hebrews 12, 1 through 2 says, Therefore we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Look unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and sat down, at the right hand of the throne of God. Number five is the number five. Uh, the fifth one is godliness, um, which means reverence or respect towards God. Uh, Hebrews 12, 28 through 29 says, Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us have grace by which we serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear, for God is a consuming fire. I think that today in our culture, another thing that's really been um, passed over is this idea that God is a consuming fire, that God's holy, that his ways are higher than our ways. And I think if you're here and you're like, I don't, man, I don't know what that means. What, what does it mean that God is a consuming fire? Um, I would encourage you to take, you can take two at a time. You can do this and, and knowledge at the same time, you can, you can study and press in and learn what God says and what, wh- how God is a consuming fire. So I'd encourage you to do that. We're not going to rip apart each thing and talk about all the pieces of it. But this is good if, you, if one of these is standing out to you, you can use that and knowledge and go and study it yourself. Okay? Sound good? So everybody's going to leave with homework tonight unless everybody's doing all these things perfect. So... Um, All right, so number six, brotherly kindness. Um, The love which Christians cherish for each other as brethren. So I think this one can help us with all of these, is that, okay, if we are in a, a relationship with other people, we're in relationship with other people who can hold us accountable, they can hold us up, they can love on us, they can challenge us where we need to. Um, this one and the last one, I think, are ones that can strengthen all of the other ones, okay? If we do these things alongside it. So John thirteen thirty four says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you that you also love one another. So um, the American Society of Training and Development did this, uh, did this study, and they found that if you just tell somebody about your goal that you have, that your commitment to a certain goal, uh, you're 65% likely to achieve that goal, okay? And then if you, are, if you have an accountability partner that you meet with regularly, uh, the odds go up to 95%. So if you have any of these things that you're like, okay, I want to pursue that, I need to pursue virtue or self-control, get an accountability partner, find somebody else, even if they have a different goal than you, find somebody around you, they can keep you accountable, and you'll be 95% likely to live up to that goal, okay? All right, so this one's not on the screen either, but it says, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. 
That's that brotherly kindness. We need to bear each other's burdens. We need to go through life together. We need to share, be vulnerable, and and pursue these things. So uh, number seven is love, the capstone of the list. And it's um, this specific love is is the reciprocal love that we have with God. So I think if you have this love that's reciprocal with God, you have this reverence and love for God, and then you have your brothers around you, sisters around you, that you can hold each other accountable. If you have those two things, you're on a good path to doing all the other ones, okay? Second Peter 1, um, 8 through 11 says, For if these things are yours and abound, you will, uh, we're going to repeat this part, but you will neither be barren or unfruitful. So I'm just reminding you why we're doing this. We, will be barren, we won't be barren or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For he who lacks these things is short-sighted and even to blindness and has forgotten that he was cleansed from his old sins. Therefore, brethren, be even more diligent to make your call and election sure. For if you do these things, you will never stumble. For so an entrance will be supplied to you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. I think one of the most confusing passages for me in the Bible has been the one, and you probably, a lot of you have heard it or seen it, but uh, Jesus is, and the disciples are walking down this road, and they, say, they see a fig tree a ways off, and there's leaves on it, and they walk up to it, and there's no figs on it, and Jesus says, uh, Jesus curses the tree and says, you'll never bear fruit again, and it withers up and dies right in front of them. And then when the disciples ask about it, they, um, Jesus says, well, you know, he basically says, if you say anything or do anything in my name, it'll be done for you. Um, and uh, to me, I was like, well, that doesn't really answer my question. Like, I was thinking, why, why does he curse the tree? Like, I understand, okay, yes, in my name, you can do anything, but why does he curse the tree? Um, and then I, after, after doing some digging, I found out that Figs, usually when they have leaves on them, they also have fruit. So, it was, and so what also threw me off in this verse is at the end it says that it was not time for figs. Has anybody read this story before? Yeah? And did it weird anybody else out, like trying to figure it out? Okay, so it said, so they go up to the tree, there's leaves on it, no figs, and then it says, but it was not the time for figs, but Jesus is cursing it because it doesn't have figs. And I'm like, well, Jesus, it doesn't, it's not the time for figs, you know? <laughs> that's, that's what my mind goes to. Um, but apparently, so figs, when they, when they have leaves on them, they're supposed to have figs as well. Like, they come together at the same time. And so the issue... Uh, wasn't that it didn't have figs because there were probably other fig trees in the region that didn't have figs at the time and Jesus didn't curse any of those ones. The issue was that they, um, they presented themselves, the tree, <clears throat> the tree presented itself like it had figs. So, um, and then, and then when coming closer, it actually didn't. And what I'm worried about as a church and why we're talking about this is Christians, us as believers, presenting ourselves like we have figs when all we have is leaves. When people get close, do you actually have figs on your tree? Are you actually presenting fruit? Are you actually becoming more like Christ? Are these virtues actually things that are built into your heart? I think we need to be careful to follow these teachings because we need to show 
that we have the fruit that we're claiming to have. We can't just be people who claim to have it, and then, you know, as soon as something difficult comes up, then, then there goes, you know, all of that. All we had was the leaves. So um, we need to be pursuing virtue. We need to be pursuing knowledge. We need to be pursuing self-control. We need to be pursuing perseverance. And I'm, I memorized them all. Okay, I'm trying to r- rattle them off. Okay, godliness, brotherly kindness, and love. Okay. So with that, I'm going to pray. We're going to close out the service. Jesus, we love you. We want to be people of fruit. We want to be people of depth. We want to be people who follow your word. Don't let us become people of of just leaves, Lord, that look like we have fruit, but really we have nothing to show for it. Lord, I pray that you'd bring up these things in our minds. I pray that you challenge us continually and help us to not just settle for having faith, but help us to add to our faith this virtue and this knowledge and this self-control and the perseverance and godliness and brotherly kindness and love. Lord, just convict us where we need to be convicted. Lord, help us to, to be more like you. Help us to look more like Jesus. Help us not to uh, be sucked into the kinds of things that so easily ensnare us. Help us not to be a church that is just, that's, that's got no depth, Lord. I just pray that your conviction, that your Holy Spirit would come. And as we worship you, Lord, we just know that you, just like this verse says, you give us everything that we need for, for life and faith and, and godliness, Lord. So I just pray that you will give us what we need. God, you love us so much that you don't want to just leave us where we're at. So I just pray that, uh, that we would be uh, submitted to you, the Lordship of Jesus. And if we're followers of you, you're the Lord. You're the Lord, and we, we need to do what you say. Thank you, Jesus. Amen.